Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome back to More Perfect Union. Welcome to one and all this morning. We are privileged to have with us Congressman Jake Achenklaus. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. And I'm going to allow Jeff Roy to wax eloquent about you, which is something he has a talent for. So I'm going to get out of his way and let him have at it. Well, Pete, thank you so much. And uh, Congressman Achenklaus, it's a, it's truly a, an honor and a treat to have you uh, join us on the show. I don't know if you've met uh, uh, co-hosts. Uh, Natalia Linos, I'm sure you met her uh, during, on the campaign trail in 2020, <laughs> and uh, and Michael Walker Jones, who was uh, uh, one of our leading educators in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the great state of Alabama. But it's um, you know we wanted to have you on the show because uh, you are just rounding out your uh, first year in Congress. It's been an incredible year, and you have done an incredible job. You have been out in the community and Franklin, I think uh, you're on a first name basis with uh, many folks. You've, uh, you've been to our fire station, you've been to our theater, you've been to our small businesses, you've been to our winery. You're, you're making the rounds and uh, making a real impression uh, here in Franklin. And I count you as uh, one of my trusted friends and confidants in, in the government. Uh, and it's nice to have a friend at the federal level. So, you know, I wanna let you jump right in and why don't you tell us, um, uh, you know, what your first year in Congress has been like, and we'll jump around and talk about some of the other things. Uh, and if you have any scoops for us on Build Back Better, throw that in as well. <laughs> I appreciate the warm welcome, Jeff and Natalia and, and Michael. It's good to be with you again. It's certainly been a historic first year, and I've had the real privilege of representing a storied district in a historic term of Congress. This is a district, the Massachusetts Fourth, stretching from Fall River and Taunton through Franklin and Sharon all the way up to Newton and Brookline, that has had a legacy from Bob Drynan through Barney Frank and Joe Kennedy of really national voices speaking on their behalf. And so I have felt uh, empowered by the district to really engage in these great issues of the moment. Uh, and I know that they really expect it of me, uh, freshman or not. What we have seen here, I think, is two overarching imperatives. The first is that we've got to demonstrate that democracy can do big things in the 21st century. When Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin sit down with Joe Biden one-on-one, -on -one, they tell him, we don't think democracy can keep up. We think that things move too fast. We think that technology and social change is too rapid in the 21st century and that government by representation and, and consensus is too cumbersome. And frankly, the last four years, we haven't done a very good job of showing them otherwise. And we need to demonstrate under the Biden administration that we can 
solve big transnational coordination problems like climate change and the pandemic, and that we can make our own economy and our own democracy more healthy. Our own democracy more healthy by protecting voting rights and ensuring the integrity of our uh, election operations and our economy by trying to redress the yawning wealth inequality that has come to define this second Gilded Age. And so much of this is wrapped up in the Build Back Better agenda. It's not a silver bullet. We've got a lot of work to do. This doesn't happen overnight, but it's a down payment on proving that democracy can work and on trying to make this economy more fair and more just. Last uh, episode, we talked about the, the Build Back Better and some of those things. And uh, Michael, you want to uh, key him in on what we talked about and uh, uh, talk about that Build Back Better? Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, uh, two things. One, welcome to the show and, and uh, thanks again for, uh, for coming and joining us. Your exposure in the community has been uh, exemplary. Now, let me get down to some of the real cases. As you may recall, one of the things that I know on the world stage that happens is that when, again, let's talk about uh, Vladimir Putin. When he sets an agenda for his country, uh, he has to convince no one other than the oligarchs that work for him, let's get this done. And I like your description in terms of the way our representative government is somewhat different than that. But at the same time, too, one of the things that happens in a representative government is that people, in order to represent in many instances, overplay exactly what their role or what they can do. Um, and have we come to a point in time, Representative, where, uh, you know, the idea of a politician making promises is really passe. You are one of over 400 members of Congress. You have one four hundredth of a, uh, of a bit of influence. And for anything to happen, it's going to take a majority of those people uh, so when you walk off to Congress, it's, yes, here are my ideas, but folks, don't forget, I've got to work with all of those other representatives from across the country. How is that working? It does not seem to be, uh, you know, and I must admit that as a, you know, just as a normal everyday citizen, it doesn't seem to be working. And let me also sort of pile on with one other piece. You know, one of the things that happens for those of us who follow not only how the issues are sort of ferreted through Congress, but I think it's unfair for the American people to believe that there is a Build Back Better bill that's been written. The bill hasn't even been written. All we're talking about are concepts. And you know, wouldn't it have been better to have had all of these components written and then say, okay, look, let's change this word, change that word, rather than just you know basically get the amorphous piece that we're uh, that we're working on. Go ahead. So I, I think I foundationally have two jobs when I when I fly down to Washington, D.C. One is I need to represent the values of my district. And the second is I've got to advance their priorities. And at times there's a healthy tension between the two, because to represent the values of the district means making some very drawing some pretty hard lines. For example, after January 6th, our office said very clearly, if you voted against certifying the election results, we are not going to co-sponsor legislation with you. We are not going to work with you on new bills. I can't represent the cradle of the revolution. I can't represent the values of Massachusetts and work with people who don't understand that free and fair elections underpin our democracy. But to advance the priorities of my district, I do need to work with people with whom I disagree. I mean, that's almost the job description of being a member of Congress. And so 
I, I don't, I, I think what you're describing up front about making promises, but then having to wheel and deal. I mean, that's, that's what you sign up for. And, and my job, what I should be evaluated on by my constituents is, are you threading the needle correctly between representing our values and making very clear where you stand, but still recognizing that compromise is reached by, by yielding on some things, because that's how you actually get to a deal, especially when the margins are tighter than the ambitions are. And then to your, to your second point, there I would push back a little bit. I mean, the build, there, there's very specific legislation. There is very specific legislation about the clean electricity payment program. There is very specific legislation about housing, uh, very specific legislation about how we're going to lower drug costs and expand the ACA and uh, do clean energy tax credits. I mean, this thing was drafted and written. It does not have, as was originally conceived, 50 votes in the Senate. So yes, there is some revisions. That is how negotiations are going to have to unfurl, though. People see things, they react to them, and then you go back to the drawing board. Yeah, but what I'm speaking of specifically is, uh, uh, and let me just give you a personal example. I, you know, having having been a lobbyist in in a prior life, prior to retirement, uh, one of the things that uh, you you know that I always prided myself on was being able to sit down with a specific bill, all the words, everything is there. And when I'm talking with a legislative member, uh, we're going over the specific words, all of the pieces that are going to go into the code and where it's going to be revised. So are you? So am I hearing you say that this particular bill, the Build Back Better bill, it is more than in many instances just concepts? Are you saying that it's written? And if so, then how do I get to it? Yeah, we did. I mean, we did markups in committee. Uh, so I'm the vice chair of the Financial Services Committee. We marked up $350 billion of investments in housing. I'm on the Transportation Infrastructure Committee. We marked up investments in climate resilience and water infrastructure and improvements to transit. This is all accessible. Now, it is still being negotiated, right? But there is, there is real text that went through a committee process for all of this. And I, I agree. I think what I'm hearing, Mike, you say is like you're seeing some of these headlines in the last few days that are sort of Democrats looking for revenue in new ways. Uh, that is true because... <laughs> Uh, one senator has just decided that she doesn't want to raise corporate or income tax rates at all, which is just incredibly frustrating because her constituents do and Americans do. Can I jump in and welcome you to um, Congressman Auchincloss? It's nice to see you uh, in, nice see you. in our group. I I want to go back to the threading the needle and the compromise. I mean, I think what we discussed last week is what is on the chopping board and how do issues that maybe don't have a strong lobby, how are they put at risk? You know, I, I know that there are Sunrise activists right now on, is it day five or day six of their hunger strike outside the White House because they feel that the environment and, you know, climate change is on the chopping board. Similarly, uh, you know, women's reproductive rights are often, you know, negotiated, whether the Hyde Amendment. And, you know, how do you find the right balance when you might not have people across our, you know, beautiful district agreeing even on some of these issues and how, where do values and what do you think right now is on the chopping board? And obviously as a public health person, I think, you know, the discussions around pharma and Medicare for all are, are top, top of mind right now to me as, you know, as a person who is dealing with the COVID pandemic. And yeah, so, so I'd love your feedback on sort of those issues that are of an existential priority, but somehow always fall through the cracks? Well, it's a timely question because in a, about an hour, I'm heading to the, to the Democratic caucus meeting room where the president's going to come speak to us and lay out a pretty detailed framework for his updated reconciliation bill. 
And I'll, I'll tell you what I'm listening for, Natalie, as, as things that to me just we've got to be able to demonstrate meaningful progress on. One is climate action. We, we need to demonstrate that the United States is on track to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions per our pledge, both so that the president can go to the Glasgow summit with credibility, and also just because we've got to reduce the carbon emissions. Number two is we've got to demonstrate that we're lowering healthcare costs, out-of-pocket costs for constituents. When I did a town hall last week, we asked folks, what, what are your priorities? I mean, this was actually the reason I did it, is for precisely this, this reason. And what they said is, I want our, we want our member of Congress ensuring that we're taking big, bold climate action and ensuring that our healthcare out-of-pocket costs are getting lower. And I take that very seriously. So drug pricing out-of-pocket costs for Medicare beneficiaries need to go down. We need to see ACA expansion. We need to see Medicaid expansion, especially for long-term care, which is really is, is just been incredibly damaging for low-income elderly. And then finally, we've got to demonstrate that we are taking care of kids in this country. Childhood poverty is a, is a decision that the world's richest country makes. It's not a natural disaster. It's not some emergent phenomenon that cannot be redressed. It's just a decision that we make. And that, the reason I know it's a decision that we make is that earlier this year, we made the decision to reduce childhood poverty. We expanded the child tax allowance. And lo and behold, when you give low-income moms and dads money for their kids, they spend that money on making sure their kids have better lives. We've got to persist that child tax allowance. We know that it works. Yeah, I jump in on the uh, climate piece because um, I know that we have been talking all year about uh, offshore wind and uh, the role that can play in the climate change. And we've seen dramatic shifts in the federal government on the approach to offshore wind. And I wonder if you could uh, throw in, does Build Back Better include provisions for offshore wind? And uh, what do you see happening in that space? The first thing I would say is we're at a uniquely propitious moment for offshore wind. For the first time ever, the federal, state, and local governments are all aligned on offshore wind for Massachusetts. And the Biden administration has said they want to see offshore wind up and down the eastern seaboard. We've got Governor Baker and, and of course, you, Jeff, as, as chair of the relevant committee, now um, working hard to make offshore wind and its economic development a reality. I've worked to secure offshore wind training for southeastern Massachusetts to ensure that this becomes a catalyst for uh, workforce development. So we're in this really unique time of promise for it. And Massachusetts, more than any other state, is positioned to take advantage of it. We've got the Permian Basin of offshore wind offshore of Massachusetts. We can tap into that wind to power more than a million homes in this state. And, and Jeff, I mean, the report that your committee put out is really, I think it's the best analysis of the potential and the path ahead. And really, the job right now is for federal, state, and local to unite around your recommendations and to ensure that Massachusetts becomes the world leader in offshore wind, not just from the procurement of it, but also in terms of the R&D and the manufacturing of it onshore. The Biden administration initially laid out a number of things that were going to help offshore wind. One is just the permitting, relaxing the permitting, which has already happened. But two and three were the clean electricity payment program, which would incentivize state utility companies to move towards renewables, which would help offshore wind directly. And, this, and the third was the clean energy tax credits that would incentivize at the consumer level people to move on to renewables. It, in, a, in a real body blow, Senator Manchin has been pushing back on the clean electricity payment program. We're going to retain the clean energy tax credits. But one of the things I'm listening for as we head to this caucus meeting is 
what are we replacing CEPP with that's going to have the same impact on greenhouse gas emissions and the same impact on the incentives for adoption of renewables? You know, toward that end, let me also um, uh, ask you this question. And again, I want to thank you for being here. I know, you, you know, your job is not easy. Being a representative in Congress uh, in these tough times has got to be a real challenge for you and your family. So again, let me applaud your efforts there, Jake. And, I'll uh, give an amen to that. Uh, and should we congratulate Jake? He is dead. He has a second child since we last uh, were. Yes. So congratulations, Jake. Yes, yes. How old yes. Are little ones? Teddy is a year and a half and Grace is three months. Congratulations. And, uh, yeah, my wife has been doing a lot of solo parenting during the week as I'm down in Washington. So definitely a, a huge debt of gratitude to her for her patience. <laughs> Let's get this family leave piece in the Build Back Better in there. So that 100%. You, can, uh, <laughs> you know. No, but Mike, I mean, it's it's really true because Massachusetts, obviously, we, we largely have the, the paid family medical leave program. And we've seen how in frankly, how popular and important it is, not just for workers, which is pretty obvious, but for businesses too. I mean, this is a win-win situation yes. here. And uh, again, we're looking at one or two senators who just are, are really allergic to the program. Uh, and yeah. as Senator Gillibrand said, until that bill is written, we've got to be fighting for it. Yeah. And, and you, know, I, you know, I'd rather focus on the positive in terms of what you're doing for us rather than, yeah. you know, those folks who are not under our uh, particular populist preview, if you will. But let me ask you uh, this piece, which is about the one of the other aspects of the bill, which is the idea of having an infrastructure. Now, let's go to the uh, uh, to the uh, to the other infrastructure bill. Yeah. Uh, when we look at the advantages across the country, it appears to me that these two bills being in tandem was a good thing because since one is coming under reconciliation, that is that you've got to have all 50 of the senators and they're going to avoid the filibuster aspect of this. And the other is much more in terms of popular and Democrat with the large D driven. It seems to me then that at some point in time, not only are you in the process of negotiating the Build Back Better piece that you're going to be talking about this morning, but you're also going to have to look at, okay, what do we do with the other piece? And I'm sure there's pressure to just go ahead and pass the one that's uh, already come from the Senate. They also put some restrictions on it too that I think were unfair. That is no amendments out of the House. Uh, and you know that again, I think is unprecedented. Yes, uh, in is. terms of the House trying to dictate, I mean, the Senate trying to dictate to the House. So what do you think is going to happen there? Uh, will they both fail or will one succeed and yet people will be frustrated because the other one then will be in jeopardy? Uh, what's your take on that? I remain confident that we're going to pass both. That has been the president's commitment. That has been the commitment from House and Senate leadership. They are complementary. We passed a terrific infrastructure bill in the House, the INVEST Act, which I was on the relevant committee, we worked really hard to make that the most progressive transportation bill in the history of the United States. It had serious sums for water potability, it had serious sums for transit and walkability. And uh, the Senate, frankly, uh, kind of bigfooted it a little bit and came in with their own bipartisan infrastructure deal. Uh, I frankly would have preferred that we that we do it through the normal committee process, right? The constitution says that we're a bicameral system of government. It does not say that we're a bipartisan system of government. We could have passed a terrific infrastructure bill 
and done it with democratic votes if necessary. And I think in the, it would have been just as popular with Americans and done, and done even more. However, uh, this, is the, this is the bill that we have. This is the bill that passed the Senate, and it's still a really good bill. It is. So I well, thought, you know, Michael, sorry. Yeah, I thought you were going to ask about, and because I know we only have a few more minutes with Jake, about the community college. Free community college seems to be off the table. Yes. I also wanted to ask you about early childhood. You know, obviously, parents of kids of different ages have different concerns. My two, my twins are four, and there is no free, you know, in Brookline, fours, there is no UPK program for fours. I probably spend 60% of my salary on just them going to daycare so that I can work. And there are so many, and I have a decent salary. There are so many women who choose to leave the workforce in order to, because they couldn't, you know, it would be more than 100% of their salary. So how, can you tell us a little bit about the education pieces, both the early childhood and community college and, and where those will move us to? The very first political position I ever took was for expanded kindergarten and pre-K, and it remains one of my top priorities. Obviously, Assistant Speaker Catherine Clark has been terrific on this issue, and Senator Warren has been terrific on this issue, and I've been uh, closely aligned with them in their, both their legislation and their letters in support. It needs to be in there. As I said before, Natalia, about taking care of kids, there is no analysis of government policy that does not come back that investments in health and education for children are the highest impact investments that we make, probably right up there with, with R&D, and the, the, everything else is a distant second. So for us not to do this in what we are billing as the new deal for the 21st century would be a missed opportunity that to me would be really unacceptable. And I remain confident that it's going to be in there. Jake, I know we only have a couple minutes, but I, this has been a great and energizing chat, but a significant event happened in your early days in Congress, and that was the incident on January 6th. You were in the room. You were part of the fray. And I'm wondering if you just spend a couple minutes talking to us about what happened on that day and what do you think is going to happen as a result of the commission? Well, first of all, it was a lesson to me about political prognostication and the, and the hazards therein, because I woke up that morning, looked at my phone, saw that we had won Georgia, Ossoff and Warnock, and I called out to my roommate, who's also a member. I said, it's going to be a great day today. We've taken <laughs> Georgia. <laughs> so that's it's always a, it, I, re, I recall that whenever I make predictions to people about what's going to happen in politics. It, it uh, was the most demoralizing day for me in my entire political career. And it marked the nadir of American democracy in my lifetime, and I would argue probably any time since the Civil War, actually. It, the, 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 the image that's always seared onto my mind are, are, are two. One is watching the protesters push up against the Capitol Police. And at first, it was looking like, okay, this was some, some rabble out there, uh, but it was being contained. And then all of a sudden, I remember seeing that the Capitol Police line had staggered. And I was in the Marines for a while. We practiced crowd control. And one of the first lessons is you cannot allow staggered lines when you're trying to contain uh, a crowd because people get in behind others, and then it's, then it's over. And I saw the Capitol Police line break, and I said, they're going to be inside the chamber. That's it. That's game over. And that was such like a, just a heart in your stomach moment where things had gone from, from contained to riotous in, in one moment. And then the other searing image is being on the floor of the chamber after they had been cleared out. I was standing next to Richie Torres, who fellow freshman from New York, come a very good friend of mine. 
And we were standing there during the debate between Democrats and Republicans about whether to certify the election results after the insurrection. And Republicans were still standing up there saying, oh, we need to, we, we're still objecting to Arizona and Pennsylvania. And I have, people use the phrase, you know, the air was thick with tension or you could cut it like a knife. I've never understood that phrase viscerally until that day. It was like toxic in there. The actual air molecules were bearing down on us. It was so intense. And that's always, that, that's always going to mark to me the low point of partisan subversion of the, of the rule of law and of democratic norms. Uh, and I, I, never want to, I never want this country to get in that position again. And for that reason, while I obviously support both the House and Senate versions of our Voting Rights Acts, we actually need to be more aggressive on this. We need to invoke the 14th Amendment and make clear that any person who, undermine, who, call, who incites insurrection in violation of 14th Amendment Section 3 while holding federal office is not eligible to hold federal office again in the future. And that includes Donald Trump. He cannot be on the ballot in 2024. He violated the Constitution. That is going to be an incredibly controversial maneuver. I have no illusions otherwise, but I mean quite seriously that it's necessary for the integrity of our constitutional republic. Thank you, Jake. And uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, speak with us this morning. I'm sure our listeners are uh, deeply appreciative appreciative of it. And uh, we look forward to having you come back and uh, talk with talk with us some more. It's uh, yes. Hold on. Fun program. It's good to be with all of you. And and thank you. And next time uh, when you come back, let's talk about the voting rights act. I know we didn't yes. talk today, uh, but we'd love to have you back and talk about that. I'd like to do that. The Senate bill is a pretty good bill, actually. I was I was somewhat pleasantly surprised, actually. Thanks, Thanks again. again. Take care. Have a great Bye day. Now. So, Natalia, get us rolling. You ran <laughs> against Jake in uh, 2020, and uh, I did. You know, I'd but love I, to, I, I'd I love feel to like it's I feel like it's unfair to uh, to uh, bring bring that history into the the game, you know, obviously as opponents on the campaign trail, you know, we disagreed on some fundamental issues, um, but we also agreed on some of them, you know, and he brought up the ones that I do value deeply around climate change. He's very strong around, you know, child, um, you know, early childhood education. I think on, on healthcare and around, you know, the costs of healthcare and pharmaceuticals, I think we still differ. I mean, it was nice to hear him say that he has heard loud and clear that our um, district wants that as a top priority, the lower the cost. Because, you know, Jeff, the number one reason that families go bankrupt is because of healthcare. And it is such a disgrace in our country to have people have to, you know, trade staying healthy with having enough food to put on the table or having a home. And, you know, yesterday I was down at Mass and Cass. And, you know, we didn't talk about the opioid um, sort of crisis and the overdose crisis that is happening across our state and other places. Healthcare is a human right. And, you know, we have challenges everybody faces, including, you know, the high cost of prescription drugs, but the mental health challenge, the fact that so many people are unable to get any mental health or substance use um, sort of support is really a challenge. And, you know, I, I'm an epidemiologist. I talk all the time about COVID. But the once this epidemic, the infectious disease epidemic is under control, the mental health crisis will come to light and we have to be ready for it. And so I worry. I worry about, you know, healthcare continuing to cost taxpayers too much and families too much. So anyways, that that is a point that I think 
you know, we probably don't see completely eye to eye um, because, you know, I, I'm a proponent of a single payer and he's not. But in many ways, you know, it's, it's wonderful to have him on the show. I think he's doing, you know, he's he's working really hard. And um, I was I was grateful to to have this half hour. So thank you for for inviting him. Well, when I, I brought the, up the uh, the election, I didn't I didn't mean it in a um, in a negative manner, but I think of all the positives that came out of that election. And one of them being that I got to meet you and get closer to you and do the show uh, with you and the others. But it's amazing how the political process can lead to these types of relationships and these types of conversations. And I'm so glad you got into that race because uh, it, it really opened my eyes to a lot of uh, topics and issues and uh, this is what I love about representative government and uh, the ability of people to have these types of conversations. So I knew you would answer that question so uh, well, and uh, I'm pleased uh, with uh, how this Thanks, all. Thanks, Jeff. And let me let me make it clear: I am not going to primary Congressman Auchincloss in this upcoming election, uh, in case people are, are wondering. But I do plan to stay involved in politics at every level. You know, at the local level, maybe in the future. You know, Congress, Senate. I, I'm not ruling out anything because I really believe uh, in the political process. I do also. I'm a realist, and I, you know, I brought up the fact that he has the two young kids. In retrospect, you know, it it is tough. People on the campaign trail would ask questions like, how are you going to do it with three young kids? And I thought it was sexist and it was sexist. But in retrospect, I'm grateful that I don't have to fin figure out this, you know, the daily realities of how are you in Washington and leave three kids behind. So, you know, these are all top of mind. So it might have to wait a little bit until they're a little older. But I know you too, uh, Rep Roy, you got into it a little older, right? <laughs> I did. My, uh, my youngest kid was 17. And, uh, you know, my oldest was uh, nine years older than that. So that's 26. So to me, that was optimal because I would have missed some valuable moments in their life. And it was interesting. Uh, my predecessor, when he left the house, his oldest child was just entering kindergarten. Yeah. So he left the House of Representatives when his kids needed him most. And I entered the House of Representatives when my kids didn't want me around too much. So, <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of impacts uh, in terms of running for political office. And again, my hats off to Jake and to anyone who steps out there and does that. Uh, there's also, don't forget to the Colin Pyle effect. So it's not just your kids uh, running for politics in, in public office is a family venture. And I know through most of my life, my uh, my wife was adamant. No. No, no. <laughs> don't touch the hot stove. <laughs> exactly. Don't. No, no, you're not going to do it. And, uh, you, you know, and you think twice when you're, you, you know, when your loved one says to you, uh, okay, if you love me and stuff, you're going to stay at home. If you don't, go ahead and uh, I'll understand and stuff. Uh, Michael, so, uh, I really want to see you running. I really want to see you running <laughs> soon. You have so much to no. offer. And, I don't know. I, I mean, Jeff, we should, we have to find a way because Michael's voice, his thoughtfulness, your compassion for people, your, I don't know, it's so rare. Uh, and I was delighted to nominate Michael uh, as the vice chair of the Democratic Town Committee just a, a, just a few weeks ago. Uh, I second that. I would love to see him uh, run 
uh, for a race, uh, not state representative uh, anytime soon. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, Michael is a, is a valued friend, somebody I turn to uh, on a number of issues and has so much to offer. So keep that in the back of your uh, pocket there, Michael. Well, look, you know what? I'm not a, uh, I'm not a uh, person who uh, does not appreciate compliments. And thank you all and both of you uh, uh, for, the, uh, for the kind words. But I also am a realist, too. Uh, at this point, I think politics is something for younger people. Uh, I must admit, I've had my opportunities. They've come and gone for a variety of reasons, whether, and, and mainly around family. Uh, my family has, you know, has never wanted me to sort of expose the family to that kind of lifestyle. Uh, and I've respected that over the years. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't have a voice. I mean, I've been a very adamant uh, believer that all of us have some role to play inside of our local, uh, whether it's civic, social, political um, uh, and I've relished the opportunities that I've had uh, in Franklin. I've been a soccer coach. I've been a basketball coach. Uh, I think those are just as important uh, as stepping up and being into the political sphere as well. So thank you very much for the compliments. I appreciate it. And, you know, it's, it's also interesting, too, in this program, when we're talking about infrastructure. One of the things, and this is what I like about the Build Back Better uh, you know, that totality of that particular bill is that it looks at the entire human capital which this country has and is so valuable to us. Um, and I can't imagine the conversations that are going on with those folks who are against these kinds of what I call extreme improvements to bring us up to a level to the rest of the world. These are not outlandish ideas. Child tax credits, for example, I think in, in our last program, I mentioned the fact that in Europe, they've been doing this for decades. The idea that we would have free kindergarten for all of us, there are countries in the world that have been doing that for decades. Healthcare. I saw an ad today, for example, where they've got these two people from Canada saying, oh, we've got it horrible up here in Canada, eh? And, and that's a lie. That is not the truth. And yet, and then at the end, you see it's sponsored by the pharma uh, industry. We have got to get a realistic view. Those of us who are trying to at least move this country forward with our theme towards a more perfect union, we've got to get people to understand that right now we are all not looking after our own personal self-interest as Americans. How do we do that? How do we get people to truly understand that these things are not wild outlandish? And the other piece too that we brought up at our last, uh, at our last meeting, they were paid for. These things are paid for. And yet now we've got two senators who want to strip away the funding, which they know for a fact jeopardizes the entire program when you take away the funding for it. Pete, I hope you have answers to these questions. I do. I'm writing them down my feverishly right now. <laughs> well, I do I, want to say, oh, sorry, Pete, you did have answers. Go ahead. I was going to say that, yeah, uh, first of all, seconding the motion on everything Michael just said about 
you know, there's nothing particularly novel here. These are ideas that not only have been around for decades, but I think I want to underscore that these are things that have been proven to have value, have been proven to work. There's no guesswork here. There's no, gee, it'll be great someday. It's, it's a fact that these things benefit society hugely. Now, that said, I also want to focus back on uh, the fact that, you know, Congressman Achenklaus was gracious enough to join us this morning. And I hope that it is, you know, the first of many. And I think today's goal that all of you underscored beautifully is there's a side of politics that people unfortunately don't get to see. The side of politics is sacrifice, knowledgeable, commitment, passion, and whoever is running against whom, certainly in the case of, of uh, Jake and Natalia, you have the opposite of a Hobson's choice. What you have is a choice among two brilliant opportunities. And so the fact that people who are brilliant in other walks of life are prepared to step up and do what they can to better humankind. Nobody shines a light on that the way they should. And I hope that this program took an opportunity uh, to do that this morning. I agree, Pete. And I think, you know, in my comment earlier about being a mom, and, you know, I think it's particular to that role being in Congress, but there are two moms on the ballot in Boston running for mayor. And it is so exciting for me that both, you know, Michelle Wu and Anissa Saibi George are parents of school-aged kids, and they are stepping into a very big role. The next mayor of Boston is going to be a mom of school-aged children, mm. and she will do an amazing job. Um, so I'm really excited about that because, you know, I didn't want to pretend that that is, you know, but that is personal sacrifice. I mean, I've seen them on the campaign trail. I've seen kids in the playground while they're speaking to media and um, you know, when I was on the campaign trial, Michael, you had my three kids, you know, holding their hands, taking them while I had to greet people. You know, we, you know, we, we make a lot of sacrifice, but there's also a lot of joy, right? The fact that my three children got to play with Michael and now, you know, have him as a, a father, grandfather figure, you know, it's, it's wonderful. And this whole idea that politicians are often under attack and scrutinized and, you know, vilified, but they are real people. Um, I like bringing us back to that. And it was nice to see Jake and as a real person, even if we disagree on, on some of the topics. Well, the public can be a horrific taskmaster operating with, unfortunately, you know, a broad field of disinformation, misinformation. And, and I think that one of the things we lose track of is that in, in that spectrum of misinformation, the opportunity to really understand in any detail the fabric and texture of what's really going on in anyone's particular political office and how they're approaching it, that tends to get glossed over. And it's really unfortunate. And I wish that we had a way, a more direct way in government to acknowledge the service. I say, give them all a raise. <laughs> but it's true. And when you think about what we pay, it's a pittance. To have to go to Washington, find a roommate or two, you know, bunk up in what is, you know, one notch above a frat house as a you know, national level politician to try to keep your expenses in check while you're also dealing with your family at home. There's just not enough money behind that to make that work. This I actually not. want to ask uh, Jeff about this because the pay at the at the local level, at the state, I mean, how many people have a second job? I, I read somewhere that it, that yeah. is pretty common. It is very common. And I can tell you 
for me, doing it at age 50, after I had spent 28 years in private practice, financially, I was able to do it. I would not have been able to do this job at age 26 when I had just graduated and I was paying back student loans and a car payment, mortgage payments, uh, all of that. It would have been impossible to do this job. And it's funny, uh, Pete, you mentioned you'd give them all a raise. Um, I can tell you, uh, it was a few years ago that we voted on a pay raise and the amount of rancor that arose from that particular vote um, and the persecution that uh, was beset upon all of us in the uh, legislature was was amazing. And the and the mailings that went out to the community uh, were horrific. And, uh, you know, uh, I have thick skin. I let it roll. But, uh, you know, it's it's devastating the level of personal attacks that we see. And, you know, we're we're running a local election here in Franklin these days. And uh, the, that level of rancor has has descended into our um, our races for town council, school committee, uh, town clerk, planning board. It's uh, it's it's disappointing. But I firmly believe that uh, at least in this community, we, we've reached a tipping point, And I think people's eyes are opening. And uh, I'm confident that our election that takes place next week is going to send a powerful message, powerful message uh, to the community about how we are going to stand up uh, for our values and that we're not going to tolerate this rancor and divisiveness. And, uh, you know, there's a slew of candidates that are out there that are committed to bringing this community together. And I'm confident that those are the ones who are going to prevail next week. It's also interesting, by the way, to note that at the local level, when you look at councilors, other positions, you know, many of those offices, you know, the the compensation plan is zero. <laughs> it's, so, it's, yeah, you know, it's, there are communities that uh, pay a nominal stipend to their right. local officials. Uh, and that that stipend, you know, gets them into a, a pension system. Well, I can tell you, um, I have 14 years of public service in Franklin, mm-hmm. and there is no stipend. There are no benefits whatsoever. It's completely volunteer and does not contribute in any way, shape, or form to uh, any retirement plan that you might get involved in. So you're doing this not for a nickel or a dime, you're doing it because you love your community. And that's why I appreciate people uh, who step up to the plate. There is something systemically problematic with that, though. We've been discussing that in Brookline. It was up for debate whether at least at the select board we should be paying because who can afford to run is either someone who's retired and has you know income or someone who has a lot of wealth. So you're excluding the renters of Brookline from ever running because they would have to, you know, 20 hours a week for free when you work two jobs is just an impossibility. Or young parents who would then have to, you know, hire childcare and don't have that extra income. So there is something about it. Yes, I want to commend people who volunteer, uh, but it does mean that the system is excluding those who can't volunteer because they don't have wealth to kind of rely on. And therefore the representation is so skewed. I mean, in in Brookline, I'm a town meeting member. It's a volunteer role. If you look at the stats, you know, I think the average town meeting member owns a home of above, you know, 1.5 million, something, you know, ridiculous. It's, it's just not representative, not representative of our, 
um, sort of diversity, the socioeconomic diversity. And so that when questions come up for debate, often, you know, people's personal um, experiences matter. And if you've never had to deal with food insecurity, if you've never had to worry about childcare costs being more than your income, they don't rise to the top. So I do think that somehow the systems um, should compensate, uh, at least at a minimum at the local level to allow for diverse uh, participation. I would, I would second that. And it gets to the point of socioeconomic injustice in that uh, the skewing that you're talking about really forces all of society to favor people who have the independence to do the job rather than uh, allowing more opportunity across the spectrum. And it's, it's unfortunate that, again, you know, just as Jeff pointed out, providing legislation that, pro that offers a long overdue increase in compensation is invariably a third rail issue. Touch it and die, and, and so I I applaud it, and I I think this is a case where, <clears throat> just as there is a cola compensation for Social Security and other things, uh, I would love to see some sort of legislative initiative that starts at a respectable threshold to make the work attractive, and has built in um, a compensation plan ongoing that doesn't have to be revisited so regularly uh, with respect to compensating people for sacrifices known, unknown, and never spoken of. And that's, that's the reality of politics. You know, altruism is one thing, but in a practical way, if we're gonna get society to move forward, we need to recognize the leadership that the politicians provide. You uh, know, I'm like, oh, go ahead, Michael. I, I'm going to actually, uh, I have to jump off in two minutes, but uh, go ahead, Michael. Okay. Well, well, no, you go ahead. If you've got to, if you've got to go, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your thought, uh, Jeff. Well, I, I was just going to say that uh, this is a full-time job and many people do not understand that. They think that all we do is uh, work when we're in session. And I can tell you, especially being a chair of a committee such as, uh, telecommunications, utilities, and energy. I'm putting in, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks. I'm traveling all over the state. Uh, I'm doing uh, a lot of things uh, to get this work so that I can bring it to the floor. Uh, and once it gets to the floor, that's the, that's the easy part. It's, it's getting a bill drafted and, and br getting buy-in from colleagues and, and uh, other you know, stakeholders, uh, that's really a tremendous amount of work. I'm not complaining. I love this work. I enjoy this. This is the greatest job I've had uh, in my life. So don't take what I'm saying as a complaint. But to attract and retain good people, uh, we need to, uh, you know, make it competitive because uh, you want the best and brightest uh, in the halls uh, making uh, the laws. So you know, just I, I wish people would take that into consideration uh, when they throw around their uh, their phrases uh, in the keyboard uh, warrior context. Yeah, you, you know, and let me let me take that one step further too, Jeff. That uh, it's important for us as citizens not only to realize that our representatives are hard workers, but that they're also accessible. 
and, and I can't think of anyone who is more accessible to the community as a representative that I have witnessed um, in all of my experience, Jeff, than the way that you work the job. Uh, so let me tell our listeners that yes, when you say you're a hard worker, uh, in many ways, that's an understatement. Uh, and I hope that you are not an anomaly. Uh, and I don't think you are in the, uh, uh, in the House or in the Senate. Uh, and part of why I say that is I attended a meeting of the uh, redistricting committee a few weeks ago. And everyone on that committee, not only were they knowledgeable about what they were doing, but I heard some things that I'm afraid that many of our fellow citizens in other parts of the country don't get to hear. One, they were concerned about what it was that we as citizens, how we access the ballot. Two, they were concerned about their districts being not only representative, but were they communities of interest? Uh, which is something that you don't hear very often when, when, when districts are drawn up. In other words, do what is it that these folks have in common? Will they be able to have civil discourse with one another? And will they address something that Natalia said, uh, you, you know, which is, is there a, uh, a wide gulf of disparity here between economic, uh, uh, between the economic interests of one part of the district or another? And then the other thing too, that I heard from this committee that I thought was absolutely stellar they were very proud of how many minority majority districts that they had created over and above what they had created prior uh, uh, 10 years ago. And they were even pointing out that, hey, if you see, and there were a number of groups that were working with them, and they said, if you see a way for us to draw even more minority majority districts, please let us know, because we want as many diverse representatives and senators as we can get out of this electorate, uh, not to the point of ridiculous gerrymandering, but to the point, again, of putting communities of interest together. I think sometimes we get spoiled in Massachusetts because albeit we'll have the full range of conservatives to liberals in our state, but what we don't have is, I think, the unruly discourse that some of the other states have, nor the idea that as a politician, I'm here to protect myself first and the citizens last. I would agree at all. Uh, hopefully this morning, one of the great insights that we've been able to offer people listening is that there is a side of politics that perhaps is greatly underappreciated. Thanks, first and foremost to Congressman Achenklaas, who joined us this morning. And I certainly hope that he gets to join us with some regularity in the future um, to be able to shine a light on what's going on in Washington in ways that perhaps the regular media doesn't have the opportunity to highlight. And also to our entire panel, August All, who uh, asked some great questions and were able to talk to Congressman Achenklaas in ways that are not merely familiar, but very knowledgeable to be able to get to the, the nexus, the nub of what's really about political life. And that said, I think that today's discussion is a great example of what it means to try to traverse that long journey toward a more perfect union. Thank you all for joining us. Until the next time, I'm Peter Jay.